comments just before we move on to the next speaker. So since uh, Dr. Falmsby has been advertising for studies, this is not my study, but uh, Joel Polevsky and colleagues have been um, still enrolling the anchor study around the country, and San Francisco is one of the sites, but I suspect uh, there may be sites in uh, the settings where folks are coming from if they're not from San Francisco. And this is to look at just this question about anal dysplasia um, in uh, HIV-infected individuals. There's a lot that we don't know about the natural history, and our assumption has been that if there is, you know, AIN disease, that we need to do something about it. And this is a really big uh, study that actually controls, uh, randomizes people to um, getting ablative therapy versus very careful, watchful waiting. And I think we really need to know that because we've subjected people to a lot of intervention that can be quite uncomfortable in the hopes of preventing anal cancer, which is a terrible disease, but we need to know if we're doing the right thing. So um, there's a nice website, it's the Anchor uh, Study, and and uh, uh, I would encourage you uh, to consider referring your patients there because we really need to know the answer to that question. Um, and then the second thing I will just add is that the ACTG actually did do two studies looking at um, the hepatitis, um, at the HPV vaccine in women and in men who were over the age, and it was over the age of 25, I think, in both. And unfortunately, while the theory was that you would help, people might have been exposed to some HPV, but not all HPV strains, so you could catch them if they were still in young adulthood um, and catch them up. It didn't actually turn out that way, so it didn't help to prevent acquisition um, of the other strains, but more importantly, it didn't change their rates of dysplasia. So I think, unfortunately, that's sort of fallen out of favor. It's obviously a patient-specific discussion to have, and there might be some circumstances where you'd want to do that, but um, unfortunately, something that made a whole lot of sense uh, I think didn't pan out. So I will stop uh, editorializing there. Um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce Tanya. Uh, I'm going to say the name wrong. Potia. Am I saying it right, Tanya? Nope. Nope. All right. <laughs> that's right. I got Lutkemeyer, so that's a yeah. <laughs> say it. Say it for me so I can say it. Tonya Petit, there you go, um, who uh, comes from uh, Johns Hopkins. I'm also from Baltimore, so I'm uh, proud to uh, recognize a fellow uh, current Baltimorean. Um, she is in the Division of Infectious Disease uh, Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins, and she has a research on a focus of LGBT health, and I loved this part on her website, which said, the intersection of public health, human rights, and social justice. So she's got a lot of important work on her plate, um, and she's gonna talk to us today about uh, transgender health and HIV infection. So thank you so much for coming. So how many people have heard that sitting is the new smoking? Okay, so stand up. I just, we've all been sitting for more than 30 minutes, right? We need to stand up, make sure the blood goes to the, yeah, there we go. Oh, doesn't that feel good? I hear like sighs. So this is like the same reason I brought like sweets to my dissertation defense, right? So you just sort of try to make people happy before you talk to them. Okay, so when you're ready, you can sit down. So I was really excited to be invited to talk um, about transgender health and HIV. And I um, wanna say a big thank you to Scott, who I think has changed my slide set about 45 times in the last 24 hours as I've gotten feedback about what may or may not be important to the folks in the room. So I did my best to pitch it to what's helpful and interesting to you, but I'll mostly try to leave plenty of time for questions about things I say and questions about things I might not have said that you have questions about. Um, these are my disclosures. And my goal is for the next 30 minutes to spend a little bit of time talking about some epidemiology, because I'm an epidemiologist, um, and then spend um, the bulk of the time really talking about gender affirmation in terms of the clinical environment, and then finish with um, just a slide or two about potential drug-drug interactions, because we have a lot to learn in that area. 
So I always start with a very basic slide that might be familiar with many of, for many of you, but I always want to make sure we're on the same page when we start talking about language. So when I use the word transgender, I'm referring to anyone whose gender identity currently is different from the sex that's on their birth certificate. And for trans women, I'm referring to people who live their lives currently as women and trans men who live their lives currently as men. Genderqueer is a relatively new term um, that I see embraced more often by younger people, and it refers to people who just don't buy into that whole gender binary at all. Either they feel like they're both male and female, neither, some are outside of that um, male-female dichotomy. And cisgender refers to people whose sex, uh, their current gender aligns with their sex they were assigned at birth. And that's the majority of people. We finally also have some data on the number of transgender people in the United States. An estimate by the Williams Institute um, says that about 0.6% of the US population is transgender, and this is based on data from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Study, and that's about 1.4 million people. This is probably an underestimate because people have to be willing to report that on the BRFS, and I don't know about you, but my patients don't trust the government, so I don't know how many people are honestly reporting um, their gender identity on these surveys, but that is our current estimate. So what does that mean for you in your clinical environment, right? How do you know if your patients are transgender? Um, one way is to make assumptions, which will get some of your patients, but the best way is really to ask. And the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health actually has guidelines for us on how we ask um, that they have tested in uh, both the United States and I think there have been studies done in Peru and in Spain as well testing this method. So this is the current standard of care, is that you ask a two-step question. The first question you ask is, how does the person identify now? And you want to offer male, female, transgender, but also if you have that cap capacity in your medical record system, I have EPIC, it doesn't do anything I want it to do, but if yours has something that, that's what you want it to do, an option for them to provide another, um, another identity that might not be on the list. And then the second question would be, what sex were you assigned at birth, right? So the reason you do this is there are some people who might have a transgender experience or transgender history, but don't currently identify with the word transgender. Right? But there are things you might need to know about their health related to that transgender history, so you need to know that information. So therefore, you have the two-step question. Someone might say, I'm not a transgender woman, I'm a woman. Right? And then you find out that they have a trans history because they were assigned male sex at birth. And there way, that way, you have that medical history that you need, and the person gets to identify the way that they choose. And it actually makes a difference when we're gathering data as well. Um, the other side of the slide is data taken from CDC testing events. And when they ask the one-step question, which is just that first one, what's your gender identity, and included transgenderous options, you see they had about 12,000 people in the HIV-positive um, testing data. But then when they used the two-step question and included both sex assigned at birth and current gender, that number leapt up to over 2,100. 21,000. I do have my glasses on. Okay, so what do we know about HIV among transgender people? The chart to your left is uh, data taken from the U.S. Trans Survey, so that's the largest survey of trans people ever done in the world, was done in the United States, over 27,000 participants, um, and one of the questions asked them to self-report their HIV status. And you can see for transgender women, the rate was a little under 3.5%, and for transgender men, it was a little under 0.5%. So we see a big difference in HIV prevalence in those populations, and that will be reflected in the focus of my talk. Not because I don't like trans men, I think they're awesome, but HIV doesn't tend to be, uh, from what we, the data we have, as big a problem among most transgender men, um, unless you're talking about transgender men who have cisgender male partners. On your right, you see the racial disparities among trans people living with HIV. And just like we see in the general population of people living with HIV, the heaviest burden is born in uh, black and African-American communities. And in fact, um, in this self-report study, 19%, so one out of every five black trans women who participated in this study reported living with HIV. 
So that's self-report, and I'm having a hot flash, so I will be taking this off. Okay, so only half of you are paying attention, right? <laughs> we'll see what I do next, right? The hot flash is not gone. All right. So laboratory confirmed HIV data on trans people. So that was self-report, and we know notoriously self-report is lower than actual rates, and that's what we find when we look at the, the testing data. So data among transgender women, our team did a global meta-analysis a few years back and found about 22% HIV prevalence from the data in the United States. So consistent, actually, with the self-report among uh, black trans women. And most of these studies were among trans women of color. And this is 34 times the odds of what we see in the general population. Then in, we did an update to that a few years ago and looked at the systematic review and tried to get a little more into the nuances of it and found, not surprisingly, 40% of these cases were among black and Latina trans women. We saw the lowest incidence among younger people um, who hopefully you expect to see that, who haven't had the opportunity to become infected yet. But still, it was 4.5%, and the general population is less than 1% of people living with HIV. So still a heavy burden and a very high incidence. Among transgender men, we saw much less data um, only six U.S. prevalent studies, only five laboratory tested, the range from 0.5 to 4.3 percent, with the caveat that the study that had 4.3 percent represented one person in a study of 23 people. So we still think that number is quite low. And the CDC just last year published um, findings on HIV testing data in the United States. And what they found is that transgender men and women get tested at the same rate as heterosexual cisgender men and women. And I thought, no big deal. Um, but then they reported data among men who have sex with men who are, oh, I'm having the same problem Susan had. Mine just wants to keep going by itself. Um, that despite higher risk for HIV, um, the men who had sex with men got tested at twice the rate of what you see as, heter as heterosexual cisgender people and the trans people. So trans people aren't get test getting tested at higher rates despite our knowledge of their higher risk for HIV. This is data from the Ryan White um, Care Program. They have a, the, probably the largest data set of, of trans people living with HIV that I've seen in the United States, over 7,000 people, representing about 1% of all the people who receive Ryan White services in this country. Again, we see the racial disparities. Um, most people in the Ryan White Care Program who identify as trans are black or um, Hispanic or Latino. And then to the right is the data that we have on retention and care and viral suppression. Um, this is only about 4,000 people, not the 7,000 people, because Ryan White provides services other than HIV care and treatment, right? So this 7,000 for all HIV services, the 4,000 or so is among people who get HIV care and treatment services. And you can see, um, if you look at the retention and care bars, the Ryan White retention and care uh, percentage overall is about 82%. Um, our goal nationally is 90%, so we're trying to get to the 90-90-90. And you can see it's not that different. It's a little bit lower for transgender populations, around 79.8, but not statistically significantly different. But if you look at viral suppression, you can see a big drop, 85% or so in the overall Ryan White population, and then 79% among transgender women. So the first thing that you can't see because the words were too big for the screen is, is transgender people overall, and then the last two are separating transgender women and transgender men. And it looks like transgender men are pretty consistent with the general population, but the caveat that most of the data is driven by transgender women because the number of transgender men is so very small. So why does this matter, <laughs> right? So we know that there's a lot of transgender people living with HIV. We know that there's a problem with viral suppression. So what do we as healthcare providers do about it, right? 
there's an um, organization called the Transgender Law Center that did a study of transgender people living with HIV in the United States called Positively Trans. And in that study, they asked people who were living with HIV and identified as transgender what their top five health priorities were. And I listed them here. And you can see that of those top five, antiretroviral therapy and its side effects were number five. Number one was gender-affirming and non-discriminatory care. So I'm going to spend a little time talking about that. And number two was hormone therapy and its side effects. And I'm going to spend a little time talking about that. And then finally, as a little plug for us as being uh, HIV uh, care providers who can also provide gender-affirming hormone therapy if we choose to do so, um, I always say if you can manage antiretrovirals, you can manage hormones in your sleep, right? <laughs> because it is much simpler. Um, but there is data from the um, Health Resources Services Administration, HRSA, um, did a community-engaged uh, special project of na national significance looking at engaging transgender women of color in HIV care. And of those nine sites, they looked at their baseline data and found that transgender women who received their gender-affirming hormone therapy at the same place that they received their HIV care were more likely to be retained in care and more likely to be virologically suppressed. <coughs> so here's Tonya's quick tips on gender-affirming <laughs> clinical environments. Most important thing is correctly gendering the patient with the gender that they identify with. So using the correct names and pronouns. So regardless of what their legal status is, what's on their insurance documents, we try, I try to, and we try to have a place somewhere in the medical record that has the name that the person goes by, whether it's their legal name. And then try to make sure that everybody in the office knows that and uses that name. And then making sure that you <coughs> use the pronoun that's correct for the person. If they go by she, he, they, making sure you consistently do that. Because making one mistake can be a huge rupture in your relationship with the patient. And I have tons of slides on the, the the personal impact of someone of being misgendered. Um, for me, I'm cisgender. If I go to the grocery store and they say he, I might go, okay, well, my hair is kind of short, so whatever, right? But if you're somebody who experiences this repeatedly day after day after day after day, having somebody misgender you, it can be a very, very painful experience and be an immediate turnoff. So I will stop beating that dead horse, but it's really, really important. Second is a lot of trans people are used to people asking them nosy, unnecessary questions. Did anybody see, uh, was it Katie Couric? who had a trans person on and she was like, so what do your genitals look like? And the person's like, none of your business, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that is the experience of a lot of trans people. I don't have to walk around telling people what my genitals look like. We shouldn't really expect our patients to tell us what their genitals look like unless it's important to their care. So encouraging you to not do that. And even if you need to know what their genitals look like and you need to ask them questions, being able to explain to the patient the purpose of the question and the purpose of the exam is really critical and making sure that you build some rapport um, before you do that. I think that's the second part of that. And then just anticipating that you actually have transgender patients. Um, if it can be really informative to go to your office, take a look around and, and just imagine being there as a trans person. Do you see anything about the fact that you exist represented anywhere on the walls, in the literature, in the materials, anything in the office? So having something that reflects back to the person that you know their existence, um, is that they exist is really important. And even just if people have a form or a tablet or something that they fill out, offering them multiple options um, that include their existence can be really helpful and make the person feel like, oh, this is a place that knows that I exist and is gonna be treating me in an affirming way. I'm looking at the little clock and feel like I'm running out of time. So let's go into the medical and surgical gender affirmation. I'm gonna focus mostly on hormones um, and focus mostly on feminizing interventions and a little on masculinizing interventions. 
just to let you know that I'm going to fly through this, but there are resources available to you that you may already be aware of. The Endocrine Society updated their guidelines for the care of, um, I think they called it gender dysphoric and gender incongruent persons, um, but they mean trans people. That's how I translated that, um, in September of last year. So those guidelines are available. The World Professional Association of, for Transgender Health, or WPATH, um, their guidelines are getting old now. 2011 um, was their standards of care seven, but they are actively working on standards of care eight, and we anticipate seeing those new guidelines come out by the end of the year. And then the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health at UCSF also has online guidelines that are um, available to all of you as well that were updated in July 2016 and were the first set of guidelines that really tried to rate the quality of the evidence behind the recommendations that they make. So let's go to a case. All right, everybody got a phone? All right, this is Chantel, not a real name. 22-year-old trans woman who comes to your office, she was just diagnosed with HIV recently and she wants hormones. She's young, healthy, no significant illnesses, no medications, her CD4 count is 475, her viral load is 80,000, her other labs are normal. You work at a place where they get all the labs before your first visit with a patient. Um, <laughs> I actually did work at a place like that. It was kind of awesome, except if you wanted additional labs and then the person was mad because they'd already given blood. Um, and then the physical exam, you notice bilateral breast buds, a feminine body contour. Otherwise, it's unremarkable. So what do you need to do to take the best care of Chantel's health care needs? Does she need the same history, physical, and labs as other new HIV patients? Does she need additional history, but the same physical exam in labs? Does she need additional history in labs, but the same physical exam? Or additional history, physical, and lab labs are needed? Like, really nobody's voting? <laughs> oh, there we go. You're waiting for music. <laughs> Great, perfect answer. She needs more of everything. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna walk through a history, physical exam, and labs for um, a new trans patient, for example. So on the initial visit, in addition to all the routine things you do for other HIV patients, you wanna document that person's gender history. So for Chantel, she's not on any medications, but she had breast buds and a feminine body contour, right? So that should raise some questions for you, right? Did, okay, good, some of you are like, yeah, it did. <laughs> All right, good. Um, you want to document whether they, they've done any social gender affirmation. Have they changed their name? Have they changed their legal documents? Um, are they living in their, um, in their gender identity? Tucking and binding, I'm going to talk about just a little bit, but not a lot. Um, I can have a whole talk on that. Um, you want to know if they've ever taken hormones before? If so, where did they get them from? What was the dose that they took? How were they administered? Were they prescribed or not prescribed? if they use needles for hormone injections or for other injections like silicones or soft tissue, silicone or soft tissue fillers, and if they've had any gender-affirming surgeries. You wanna ask what their gender-related goals are. Um, I know early in my practice, I made a big mistake. I had a patient who came in, was asking for hormone therapy, and I assumed that they wanted to completely transition to living from a male to a female, and that's actually not what the person wanted. They wanted something different than that. So being able to ask the person what 
are their actual goals and what's, the, what's important for them. That also helps you do some reality checking because sometimes people are like, I want to be Dolly Parton. And you're like, that's not going to happen. Dolly Parton's not even Dolly Parton, right? <laughs> so <laughs> you can't do that. I mean, maybe. If you have enough money and enough surgery, right? You can do anything. Um, you also want to address psychosocial is issues. So I live in a city where most of the trans women, because of stigma, discrimination, and um, especially in employment and housing, may be unstably housed, may be unemployed, living under the poverty line. So they're at risk for a whole set of um, health conditions related to that social situation, including depression, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder from discrimination. And you want to talk to them about resources that you may know about that are available. And if you don't know about them, getting access to them so you can refer your patients to them can be very helpful. Um, and then you want to do baseline laboratory tests, similar to what you do for every other HIV patient. And I have question marks in front of a couple of those. We're going to talk about testosterone. We'll talk a little bit about prolactin and estradiol and measuring that. The sexual history can be difficult with any patient, especially for those of us who might not be all that comfortable talking about sex. I don't know, I feel like I'm in San Francisco, weird, it's weird to say that, but some people are not all that comfortable talking about sex. But sexual history taking is really important. It's important also to avoid assumptions. Often we think of, okay, here's a trans woman with HIV, she must have cisgender male partners. Well, you won't know that unless you ask the person. And she might have cisgender male partners and then other partners, and you wanna know that as well to give her appropriate um, health education information. Some open-ended ways that you might ask about sexual history so you avoid making assumptions is asking, how many partners have you had? What are the genders of those partners? And let the person answer for you. Ask them what kinds of sex they're having, what behaviors that you might engage in that might expose other people to your fluids or you to their fluids. How do you protect yourself and your partners from STIs or HIV? Do you use barriers? What kind of barriers? How often? And the benefit of those kinds of questions is there's no gendered assumptions there. And then once the person starts answering, you can be more specific in the kinds of questions that you ask. And you might be thinking, well, that will take 20 years. It really doesn't. It's a lot faster than making assumptions and then apologizing and then making another assumption and then apologizing if you're not right. Then the physical exam. I find that many of my patients are very stressed about the physical exam. I see other people nodding. Um, people have had histories of negative experiences in their body, both in medical settings and also just generally in the so society. I know a lot of patients who are misgendered and mistreated just on the bus ride from where they live to their appointment. So by the time they get in to see me, they've already been traumatized multiple times and I'm gonna say, take off your clothes and let me see your body that you might have dysphoria around. So it can be very stressful for people. That's why it's important to defer anything that's unnecessary. Um, to engage principles of trauma-informed care. And the way that I try to embody that in my practice is I ask permission for everything. May I listen to your lungs? May I look at, they're sitting there, they know that I'm gonna do those things, but just letting the patient know that they're really in control of the encounter and nothing's gonna happen that they haven't given permission for. And then again, being consistent with pronouns and names. An anatomical inventory is essential. One of the worst things to do is have an expectation of what you're going to see before the person takes their clothes off, and then they take their clothes off, and you're not able to control your face, right? <laughs> like, I'm really bad at controlling my face. You've probably known that. If I'm thinking something, it's clear to everybody. So doing that anatomical inventory before you do a physical exam can be very helpful. It's also helpful to know a couple of little pearls about somebody who might have had gender-affirming surgery. So for example, prostate glands are not removed during vaginoplasty. So if somebody tells you they've had lower surgery and they've had a vaginoplasty, they still have a prostate. So they might have symptoms of prostatitis, for example. And it's important to keep that in your differential and to think about that when you do your exam. Um, and just as a tip, 
I don't know if I, if where was here. So this is, um, this is someone who's had um, a vaginoplasty, and here's where the prostate sits, okay? So it's easier to actually do the prostate exam vaginally than it is rectally. It's also more gender affirming to ask a trans woman to be in stirrups to have an exam. So that's something to consider. It's also true for trans men who've had metoidoplasty, which is also called a clitoral release surgery. It's more commonly done than a phalloplasty. Um, this is someone, this is not a real person, this is a drawing <laughs> of somebody who's had metoidoplasty, and you can see they still have a vagina. And they may, um, they're unlikely to have a cervix, usually they've had a hysterectomy, but they will have a vagina. So be aware of that when you're doing your exam as well. Okay, so I'm going to Take a five-second commercial break with no words on the slide to talk about tucking and soft tissue fillers. So tucking is a process that trans women do, um, many trans women do, of tucking the penis under and then the testicles up in order to cre create a flat appearance to the front of the pelvis, right? This is done for gender affirmation and also for safety. You can imagine if you're a trans woman and you're walking down the street and you have a giant bulge in the front of your skirt, that you're at higher risk for violence than if you don't. So this is a common practice. People use a variety of things for tucking. They can use um, something sort of official called a gaff that looks like tight panties. They can also use tight panties, duct tape, various things that people use to keep that area flat and tucked under. Um, we recently did just a patient reported survey to ask people if they had any health effects associated with tucking. And the most common things people reported were skin rashes and skin irritation. But also some people were reported thinking that they'd had UTIs and other urinary symptoms associated with this. So I think it's really important for us as healthcare providers to ask about tucking and to screen for those kinds of side effects that might be associated. And then the second is soft tissue fillers, which are often commonly referred to as silicone, whether or not they contain any silicone, <laughs> right? Um, and this is very common. Um, People will inject um, these soft tissue fillers into various parts of the body. The picture you see here is having it injected into the breast. People have injections into the hip and the buttocks and sometimes into the cheek um, to change the body to match their gender identity, usually to feminize the body. So this is not a medically accepted practice. It's loose silicone or loose fillers, which means it can migrate, cause inflammation, sometimes has led to acute respiratory distress. So it's a very unsafe practice. So I try to talk to patients who are doing it in a very non-judgmental fashion. It's much easier to get silicone injections than it is to get any kind of surgery. So it's not a surprise that people would use that. It's also much faster. You walk in and you don't have breasts and you might walk out and you have breasts. That's much easier than two years of hormone therapy, right? So I talk to people about some of the side effects, um, health effects associated with that and try to encourage them to reduce it. But it's something to think about and to ask your patients about. So it's in your differential if they come in with some symptoms associated um, with soft tissue filler use. So I'm going to spend most of the rest of the next four minutes or so talking about hormone therapy. Um, most feminizing regimens are a combination of estrogen and an antiandrogen. And the purpose of the antiandrogen is to allow estrogen dosing at a much lower dose than you would need if you didn't have an antiandrogen and therefore reduce some of our concerns about adverse effects associated with estrogen, right? So I won't go through all the dosing here, but you can see the most commonly used um, antiandrogen is spironolactone because it's dirt cheap, right? But it comes with all the side effects you'd expect of spironolactone. Um, estrogen obviously comes in many forms, patches, pills, <laughs> um, injectables, orals. The one thing to remember, and this may be on your test, <laughs> is that ethanol estradiol, the type of estradiol that is in birth control pills, is not recommended for gender affirmation. It is much more thrombogenic than the 17-beta estradiol that you would see in the kinds of estrogens that are used for um, menopausal women. Those are the kinds that you'll want to use. 
What people anticipate experiencing when they have feminizing hormones are redistribution of body fat. They're not gonna suddenly be super curvy hourglass figure, but they will notice some redistribution of body fat, decrease in muscle mass, softening of the skin. Um, they will also have often a decrease in libido, a decrease in spontaneous erections. So they may over time um, decrease to mescence, but they should still be able to have erections that are not the so spontaneous morning erections. Breast growth is the most obvious thing that people notice, but also decrease in testicular volume, sperm production, and terminal hair growth. If folks have male pattern hair growth already, that's not gonna reverse that, but it can slow it down and stop it. What we're most concerned about from estrogen is thrombosis, and what we're most concerned about from spironolactone is hypotension and hyperkalemia. So I'm gonna walk through the rest of these pretty quickly because I think you're gonna get these slides. There are other effects of feminizing hormones that we're discovering as people start to do more and more research in this area. You would expect your patients to have increased weight and often it's fat. Um, we don't see much change in fasting glucose, but we do see an increase in fasting insulin and insulin insensitivity. Insulin sensitivity is decreased, so important to notice that. The hemoglobin is decreased, as you'd expect to see people move more towards a female range. Um, when looking for abnormal labs, I would use the lower range of the female, um, the female range and the upper limit of the male range as your normal range, and this is what's recommended by the UCSF guidelines. Um, you see a slight increase in uh, white blood cell count. You see a decrease in creatinine, and most people recommend using the upper limit of normal for the male range. Now this is what we're estimating now. There's been no long-term studies to follow people over time, so this is just um, clinical experience. There aren't any recommendations of changes in terms of alkaline phosphatase, but they do recommend using the upper limit of normal for that. This slide is to drive home my point about the why people don't recommend using ethanol estradiol or, or oral contraceptive pills. So you can see here, it's a comparison between transdermal estradiol, oral estradiol, and then oral contraceptive pills. And you can see the biopotency is greater, the risk for venous thrombosis is greater, the lipid effects are more negative, higher coagulability, inflammatory markers, all sorts of negative things. So the two things that we should think about differently in terms of managing care for transgender women is increased risk for cardiovascular disease. This is often highest in the first year of hormone therapy um, and increased risk for um, DVT and PEs. And there's some uh, data listed here. And the take home message is you wanna avoid ethanol estradiol and have a high in index of suspicion if people come with any sort of symptoms that might send off your warning flags around DVT or PE or as uh, well as um, cardiovascular disease risk. And keep in mind that some of the cardiovascular disease risk calculators are based on sex, right? Do we know which ones to use for our transgender patients? Not necessarily, right? So they could be underestimating risk because of gendered assumptions, and they could also be underestimating risk because they're not taking to into account exposure to estrogens for trans women patients. We also, you've heard the primary care talk, so I'll go through this pretty quickly as well. There was a very interesting study looking at trans women compared to cisgender men and found that trans women, even before starting hormone therapy, had a higher prevalence of osteopenia. So that was a surprise to me. The authors thought maybe because of their lifestyles were more sedentary, they were more less likely to pay sports and other sort of typically masculinely gendered activities. We don't know for sure, but that was one study. We'll see what happens. The studies on the effects of feminizing hormone therapy is inconsistent, but we do know that the greatest risk for bone loss is after gonadectomy. So you wanna consider getting a bone mineral density testing when there's risk factors for osteoporosis, especially for those who stop sex hormone therapy after they've had a gonadectomy. 
So here's Ray. He's a 45-year-old trans man with stable HIV. He comes to see you a year after he started testosterone. He's continuing to menstruate. CD4 counts 600, viral loads undetectable, other labs are normal, physical is normal, including a pelvic exam. Medications are TAP-FTC and boosted darunavir, and he's on testosterone, 200 milligrams by injection every two weeks. What additional workup is needed? He needs to increase his testosterone dose. He needs to change his HIV regimen. He needs referral for an endometrial biopsy. He doesn't need anything. Everything's normal. just a couple more seconds and then stop. Y'all are shy. Yes, he needs a referral for an endometrial biopsy. So why, why did I say that? Masculinizing therapy, I just stuck it all into one little slide because we're running out of time, but basically testosterone is the masculinizing therapy that um, most people use. You can, it's available by injection, often used subcutaneously. There are also patches available, gels available. Um, there's under-the-skin pellets that people can have put in that are changed every three to six months. The expected changes are uh, facial and body hair, which is usually the first thing people notice over time, deepening of the voice. You should expect to see amenorrhea on an appropriate dose within six to 12 months. 200 milligrams IM every two weeks is actually an appropriate dose. And so this person is continuing to bleed despite 12 months of appropriate dose testosterone. And this person was 45 years old, right? So you wanna do an endometrial biopsy. Um, and an another important thing to remember is that fertility decreases after the menses cease, but that doesn't go away. So if the person has a partner who is capable of getting them pregnant, talking about contraception is gonna be really important. And I'll let you look at the adverse side effects. In terms of hormone therapy monitoring, recommendation is that people have a clinical evaluation every three months in the first year, and then every six to 12 months thereafter. The clinical evaluation is gonna be assessing for those type of changes that you would expect to see. So you can document those for yourself and for the patient. Then in terms of laboratory evaluations, for feminizing hormones, your goal is a serum testosterone level less than 55 and an estradiol that should not exceed a peak physiologic range of about 200. Prolactin levels are actually not recommended. There used to be some controversy about this, but basically, if you get an elevated prolactin level in somebody who's asymptomatic, then they're subjected to then a CT scan or an MRI of their brain. They might have an invasive procedures done, and what are you gonna do? Pretty much nothing. They, they have an innocent finding, so only if they're symptomatic. And PSA levels are unreliable in somebody who's on estrogen, right? So if somebody has a PSA that's in a normal range, that doesn't mean anything necessarily for somebody who's taking estradiol. So the digital rectal exam is even more important. For masculinizing hormone therapies, the target for testosterone is between 400 and 700. If it's IM, you wanna measure mid-cycle, not mid-menstrual cycle, but in between the two injections, or two hours after application if it's transdermal. And all other monitoring is per HIV and USPTF guidelines. So the last case is Marissa. She's a 36-year-old trans woman who has recently switched from tenofovir FT. <laughs> I was like, I'm really done. It's <laughs> like not subtle. Well, I can tell you about Marissa. She was switched from her antiretroviral agents to something different, and she comes in complaining of hot flashes. She has a slightly elevated blood, I remember this case. She has a slightly elevated blood pressure. Um, she's undetectable, CD4 count is 520. Um, oh yeah, so she was switched from tenofovir FTC and boosted adizanavir to um, 
TAF FTC, um, L-Vitegravir, COBE, and she's on estradiol, six milligrams a day, and spironolactone, 100 milligrams twice a day. So what might be the cause of her hot flashes? A likely cause. Disseminated mycobacterium, early menopause, pheochromocytoma, or drug-drug interactions? Thank you for giving me three more minutes. <laughs> okay. Nobody has any questions? Okay. Great, more people have feelings about it. Yeah, how'd you guess? It was just one of the objectives, right? <laughs> right, so this is the one slide and then I'm almost done. Um, data on drug-drug interactions for 17-beta estradiol, the type of estradiol that's used by menopausal women and used by transgender women is almost non-existent. So if you open the DHS guidelines, which I recommend, and you look at the tables in the back for the drug-drug interactions, they're all based on oral contraceptives, right? So in the most recent update to the guidelines, they did add a section on gender-affirming hormones, but it's based on extrapolations, not on actual studies that have been done, just so that you know that's a caveat. And I basically took the pieces of the table and squished it all together. The take-home message is that what you're mo most likely to see is an impact of the antiretroviral agents themselves on estradiol. You're less likely to see an impact of estradiol on the antiretroviral agents, right? So if she has a switch in her antiretroviral agents and she's feeling hot flashes, it could be that that's having impact on her estradiol level. And that might be a, I'm a person who tests testosterone, but not estradiol, because I know I'm giving super physiologic doses of estradiol. Um, but that's a, a time where I might want to check and see what's happening. For anti-androgens, you might see an impact of the antiretroviral agents themselves on the anti-androgens, so possibly an increase of detasteride and a decrease um, with NNRTIs on detasteride and finasteride. And for testosterone, basically these things are in the guidelines, but people we've been giving, for those of us doing HIV care for a long, 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 long time that we're not gonna talk about, we used to give um, men with HIV testosterone not that uncommonly, and we didn't see a lot of drug-drug interactions, so we don't really anticipate having a, a clinically significant drug-drug interaction there. So the take-home message, according to Bree, who participated in the CDC Greater Than AIDS campaign, is that she wants medical providers to understand that we medical providers are the access of our patients to living healthy lives and being their true, authentic selves. And part of helping a trans patient be their true, authentic selves is supporting their gender-affirming journey. Here's some resources available to you. I apologize for going over time, and um, we have hopefully 10 minutes for questions. Thank you. If you follow the prolactin and it's 100, yes. like from some other, so the patient's asymptomatic, yes. you check it for the first time and it's 100, yep. yes, I would do something about that. <laughs> but you wouldn't have checked it if you had done a visual field test and they were fine. Yes, I would not have you checked it. Do visual field testing? I don't. If the patient doesn't have complaints, I don't. I mean, I do my usual like annual exam. drop the hormones just because of the number if the patient was asymptomatic so even if they have a prolactinoma but they're not symptomatic yeah I wouldn't do it okay. um, so following in the monitoring um, I've heard some people allow for trans um, feminine 
trans women's estradiol goal extending to less than 300 instead of 200? Thoughts on this? What your goal is for estradiol and development and checking that, by the way. Yeah, so this is the caveat I always say with follow. So my real goal is the patient's changes, yeah. right? So I follow the labs to show the patient that something is decreasing. So if it's less than 300 and it's not less than 200, but they're having the desired effects, physiologic effects, and I don't keep going with the estrogen up and up and up just to get a number down, I don't do that. <laughs> You're getting like the true story behind the like, I'm going to present the data-driven. Okay. Um, what are the recommendations for mammograms in trans women, uh, particularly those on high doses? Uh, see, that's a great question. So um, the current expert advice is that if the person has been on um, estrogen for less than five years, even if they're if they meet the guidelines, if they're 60 years old, but they've only been on estrogen for a year, not to do a mammogram. But if they've been on estrogen for at least five years and they reach the, the age that one would anticipate doing a mammogram, to follow the mammogram guidelines. And of course, they all disagree with each other, so you have to pick which mammogram guideline you're going to follow. Can you talk at all about what your experience has been with the mammogram provision? Because I imagine that in, depending on the institution, that may be a really not pleasant experience because they're like, well, I don't know why you're here. Or they might get very uh, stigmatized. Yeah, if it's somebody who hasn't changed their gender marker and may not be somebody who is assumed to be a woman when they come in, then I have been known to, and this I've done this more for trans men who are having pelvic um, exams done, just call and let, it's, it takes time, you know, we do extra things all the time for our patients, and say, I have a patient who's coming in who's trans, these are their person's pronouns, be prepared, don't freak out and act like a weirdo when they get there, please. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> internally, and then what about like taking a break from um, tucking if people have had, um, you know, skin and soft tissue issues or mm. having trouble with urinating? Yeah. So there was data that I didn't present on how long people tucked and for how many hours a day and then over what period of time. So in terms of risk of testicular cancer, the short answer is we don't know, right? We can try to extrapolate from the data that they have on men who bike wearing those little tight biker shorts and stuff, but like nobody bikes eight hours a day every day. I mean, maybe. Lance Armstrong, but you know, but, and there you go, right? So <laughs> maybe, yeah, so there's a possibility. And I do try to encourage people, if you're at home, just chillaxing in your bathrobe, you don't really need to be tucking at that, you know, just to like let it all go when you get home for many things. <laughs> Yeah, there are some guidelines that recommend that as women approach menopausal age, as you start dropping their um, estrogen, like you would see in a natal woman, people don't like it. If you can convince your patient to do it, more power to you. <laughs> so, um, oh, oh, just a request to quickly review soft tissue filler injection risks. And I would just clarify, just so that people aren't confused about this, this is not like Sculptra, which is an FDA-approved, you know, for um, uh, lipodystrophy in the face. We're talking about, I mean, I've seen my patients get everything from but they think it's silicone that can be like mineral oil and silicone that migrates. So I think you can answer this question too. Yeah. <laughs> no, so you've had a yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is outside of yeah. practice. So this is somebody comes to town, they got a bunch of silicone or something that they call silicone, and a bunch of people come over for a pumping party. And in that party, they have a bunch of silicone and hopefully a bunch of sterile needles, if you're lucky, and they inject people in various parts of their body to make physical changes. And there's no encapsulation, there's no necessarily um, <laughs> sterile technique that's used. And so in addition to the concern about infection immediately, there's a concern about migration. So this is loose silicone or another adulterant 
going wherever it wants to go in the body. So pe there are there've been New York Times articles and other articles about how it migrates through the body and can be very disfiguring. But there's also the risk of emboli, right? And that's what typically is associated with acute respiratory distress syndrome. People can also have like ulcerations as the silicone migrates through the skin. And bad infections. And bad infections, yeah. So you talked about using gender neutral terms and someone raises the question about how do you handle asking a trans female patient about her penis with testicles? Is mm -hmm. that problematic? That is a great question. Um, we don't know about trans women. We have a little bit of information about trans men because I used to tell everybody to ask the patient what term they wanted to use and then reflect that back to the patient, what they call themselves. And then there was a study done with about 1,800 trans men asking them, do you want your healthcare provider to call your front hole, if that's what you call it, your front hole, or do you want them to call it the vagina? And overwhelmingly, they wanted a healthcare provider to use healthcare terms. So I was like, eh, look at my assumptions. So I would ask your patient, you know, what do you want me to call this part of your body? Okay. It's like, I would normally call it a penis. What do you feel comfortable with me saying? And then um, just to, to round it up and bring it back to issues around PrEP, when we know that obviously trans populations, particularly trans women, uh, are in need, many are in need of PrEP and aren't getting it. Any info or ideas about PrEP recruitment um, and use in trans women? And I, I'm editorializing about how we can improve that. Oh my God, I have an hour long talk on that. Should I just give it right now? <laughs> no, well, yeah. So I think gender affirming environments are really helpful. Um, Susan talked earlier about how people don't see themselves reflected in the prep ads that are like happy white gay man on top of mountains, right? So that, <laughs> I mean, maybe you're a happy white gay man on top of a mountain and that's awesome, take your prep with you. But for other people who also might be a high need of prep, they don't see themselves reflected in the kinds of ways that we talk about prep. So I think we need to shift how we're talking about prep and, and what it is and what it can do for people in a much more empowering way. Like look at this amazing tool that's available to you that can help protect you from HIV. It's not just for white gay men, you deserve it too. Anything else? No. Nope. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you so much.